If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. We're going to be in Malachi chapter 3. We'll be wrapping up uh, the third chapter today. If you don't have a Bible with you today, a couple of things. One, there are some over here at the hub. Uh, If you don't have one here today, you can utilize that. If you don't own one, we'd love to give that to you as a gift. You're free to just take that. Um, And also, if you don't have one today, uh, it will also be up on the screen uh, behind me. So, This morning, we are in week seven, and we are two weeks away now from wrapping up our series in the book of Malachi. And last week, what we looked at was how the people were robbing God and how they were not being faithful to him in their giving, that they were acting like they had given enough. So because of that, they really expected God to to bless them and to also judge the evildoers. And now as we're wrapping up chapter three today, we're looking at verses 13 through 18, where God is really addressing the issue of their serving and their lack of faithfulness to him. And because they are not faithfully serving God, they are instead growing discontent and disinterested. And in this, they're continuing to speak in ways that are weary towards the Lord and his true character. But it's not just their words that are an issue. What we need to understand when we hear the words in the text, it's not just what they are saying, but what their words reveal about a hardness in their hearts. And so we've seen that all, we've seen this all throughout the book of Malachi, that the people are both rebellious and unrepentant towards God. And so again and again, what we've seen throughout this series is that faithfully God is going to answer and he is going to confront their disillusionment, their discouragement, and their doubt. And in this, what he's calling them to is a greater standard. He's calling them to pursue holiness and to pursue right relationship with him. And so today we're gonna see how God responds to the idea that it is oppressive and even worthless to serve him. Now, see, this is more than just an hour or two of serving in the temple. It's in the, in the lack of their serving, it showed their deep unfaithfulness in relationship to God. See, they, as they saw how the evil and the unrighteous were prospering around them, as we even see back in chapter two as they share, in comparison to that, they were struggling. They were struggling as a nation, and so they saw in their struggles that God was being unfaithful. In their view, God was being unjust, allowing the evil to prosper and do well while they were still struggling. And in this, this is something that we can dangerously assume as well in our own context. Because the fact is that we live in a world corrupted by sin. And in a world where at least for now, the wicked sometimes and oftentimes do prosper. Well, sometimes we see God's faithful people struggle and even suffer. And so if we're not diligent to maintain our confidence in God's word and in his true character, we might begin to believe that there is no real benefit in serving God and living faithfully in relationship to him. But let me remind you, as I've often contended to argue, that God is at work He is still faithful, even when we don't see it, even when we don't feel it, and even when we don't know it. So whether we benefit from our serving or not, it is still beneficial and important that we serve. 
But again, this is still an issue today that people are leaving the church and there are some that are even leaving the faith because at times they're walking through difficulty and pain and they experience real suffering. And they question, God, where are you in the midst of that? Where's the fruit in the midst of that? But even further, one of the the more real issues of why people leave is because living for Jesus doesn't fit into their American dream. Living for Jesus really doesn't fit into their American lifestyle. And so I want to remind you that Jesus didn't promise you the American dream. He doesn't promise you all of these fruitful things always in your life. That at times, following Jesus will not be easy and not everyone is going to like you. In fact, we see this literally from the mouth of Jesus in John chapter 15, verse 18, where he says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. So see, what we need to understand is that obedience to God and following Jesus aren't things that always comply with culture, but it is something that is both important and valuable. But see, for whatever reason, we've believed the idea that you can like Jesus and you can do religious things and not need to be faithful and really serve God. And and one of the side things in that is that we see all of these different ideas of what a Christian is. That really, we, if we look deeper, we see unfaithfulness and a lack of serving, and that is problematic. The idea that if you just identify with Jesus, you're good enough. But see, this is a deep issue, because this is not what is true of the Bible. And that is certainly not something that Jesus taught, and it is certainly not something that Jesus lived. And again, this is not something that is just an Old Testament, New Testament issue. This is an issue today. Earlier this week, I read an article from a secular news outlet written by a Christian apologist. It's a weird combination there. But in that that article that, that grabbed my eye, it said, 10 reasons young people are backing away from God and Christianity. 10 reasons why young people are backing away from God and Christianity. And the writer's last paragraph just struck me as such a true statement. He says, it is true that our culture has grown visibly opposed to God and Christian commitment. But in addressing the spiritual weakening rate of young America, it must be admitted that a prayerless, powerless church peddling versions of Christianity light share in the blame. God only knows the degree of our complicity and our complacency and also the time when we'll be concerned enough to change direction. See, this is same issue, different time. The, the, the desire of God in pursuit of his people has always been that the people of God must repent and return to him. And so this morning, as we look at God's response again in the text, God is really going to remind us that contrary to what our circumstances are and the, and the circumstances of others, other believers, other non-believers, that, that those things may indicate a struggle in the physical, there is still much value in serving God. And so what we're going to unpack and really apply this morning in our outline together is that we are called to serve God faithfully where we fear him and esteem his name because he is faithful and a just judge. And so we're gonna read in Malachi chapter three, starting in verse 13. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? 
You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, this morning as we go to your word and we look at what it means to truly serve you, to be those who fear you and esteem your name, to be those who desire and long for and live to go after deep relationship with you, Father. I pray that this morning you would change us from the inside out. God, I pray that as we look at the, the detail of faithfully serving you, God, that we wouldn't try to approach that with any uh, type of works that we can come up with, but that we would approach that through faith in Christ. So God, this morning, we commit this time to you. Father, I thank you for your word. And God, I pray that as we look at this text, that it would be applied to our hearts and worked out in our living. So God, we, we love you. We thank you for this morning and for your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. So in verses 13 through 15, God is really getting at the heart of the issue that he was addressing in the text previously. He's really addressing a a return to relational language and really a return to covenant. That when they say it's meaningless to serve God, to give to God and to obey God, they're really saying we see no profit in it at all. And this is ultimately because they have separated obedience from relationship. And let me give you an example. We don't serve or give to our spouses only to benefit us. We do this or we should be doing this, especially when it doesn't because of our covenant with them. And so in the same way, we don't obey God because we believe it will profit us. We have already profited by our faithful God giving himself completely over to us in the person and work of Jesus. And so this is why we obey. This is why we serve. And this is why we give. We don't give to get blessing. We give because we have gotten every blessing we should ever need in Christ. But see, here they're ignoring the real issue and focusing on what they want from God. They're disregarding their own disrespect and hardness of hearts, and they have a deep expectation of God. And we see this in how they speak to God, as he says in verse 13, that your words have been hard against me. And see, what we've already looked at both earlier in this time and in this series is that this reveals an issue of their hearts, not just their behaviors. This reveals an issue in their hearts, not just their behaviors. And let me tell you, nine times out of 10, this is even the case in parenting. 
that the behavior isn't just the issue. It's a symptom. The belief is the issue. And so as a perfect father, God reveals. Even before they even say anything directly to him, he reveals what they believe, which we see in verse 14 when they respond to him. And they say, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? See, their complaint against God is that they believe arrogant evildoers prosper while those who serve God do so in vain. And so the issue is that the people believe they have been obedient to God. They believe they've done everything that God has asked. And then in that, they've really just gone through the motions with regards to their worship and their approach to the temple and their approach to the law. And from what they can tell, they've done the best that they can. And yet in that, in their view, their service to God has accomplished nothing for them. And so in their words that it's vain, or another way of saying that is it's useless to serve God, they're really looking around and they're asking themselves, what have we gained by doing what he says? What have we gained by putting on a show of repentance and remorse for our bad behavior? What profit is there in all of this for us? And so they're really questioning the character of God. But see, what we need to remember is that these are the same people that are bringing worthless sacrifices to the altar of God. These are the people that are following and being led by corrupt priests These are the same people that are breaking their covenant with God by marrying pagan women and divorcing their faithful wives in the process. These are the same people neglecting their tithes and offerings. And so these are not faithful people where God has grown silent and he has grown in a way of not answering them. And yet even in that, in their minds, they're saying, listen, we've rebuilt the temple We've had priests serving in the temple and facilitating worship once again. And we've, we've come before you. We're bringing offerings just like you have asked us to do, but it's not benefiting us. So where are you at, God? And ultimately, the problem in here that we're looking at is that it's not genuine worship. It's not genuine relationship that they are approaching. But see, they don't see this. They had become blind to their own sin and their hardness of heart. That ultimately they are rejecting God and they are accusing him of being the unfaithful party. And so their response in this is, what is even the point? This is not my best life now. I'm not experiencing blessings. God, where are you at? You must be the unfaithful one. So see, their words grow even more offensive to God. And and in this, they really contradict the heart and the character of God by saying in verse 15, we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. They're accusing God and they're calling out what is in contradiction to his character. I mean, in speaking this, they are speaking against the true character and heart of God. And they're accusing him of going outside of his covenant, of breaking covenant with them. And really, this shows that they continued to walk in rebellion against God. That they're choosing to deny both his promises and his authority. 
And see, really what, what it comes down to is they're not wanting to face the cost. Because let me tell you, it costs something to keep God's commands. They would have had to humble themselves to walk as mourners before the Lord. And this would be their repentant approach and posture. But it seems, as we're seeing in the text, that to God's people, the cost wasn't worth the reward. And isn't it true of some of us today that we want the reward of serving, but we don't want the cost? We want the praise, but not the pain. And so church, let me tell you that God calls us to serve him faithfully, regardless of how we feel. God calls us to serve him faithfully, regardless of how we feel. And see, for, the, for some, God has no authority in their life to call them to serve. Because ultimately, they're not under God's authority. They are focused on their own authority. And so this is how the people of God are treating their relationship with him. They're focused on material promises based on their ideas and their expectations. But again, God is trying to get at something deeper than just their behavior and their practices. Because remember, what we've seen throughout this whole series is that God is after repentant hearts that would return to relationship with him where they will serve him wholeheartedly, where they will fear him and esteem his name as he is due. And so in verse 16, we see Malachi shares with us what happens when godly people seek God. As we read, it says, then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. And the Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. See, the first thing we see in this verse is that those who gathered together, apart from those who were, who were speaking out against God and were completely in rebellion to God, those who gathered together were those that feared the Lord. Now, in order to better understand and really get at the heart of what the rest of verse 16 tells us, I want you to understand and I want to explain to you what it means that they feared the Lord. See, some simply really redefine the fear of God for believers to respect God. That simply to fear God is to respect God. And while that is absolutely uh, part and included in what it means to fear God, there is more to it than that. That for the believer, fearing God means having such a reverence for him that it has an impact on the way we live our lives. And so the fear of God is, yes, respecting him, but it's obeying him and it's submitting to his discipline and it is worshiping him fully for who he is. And so we see this in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28 and 29. This is an incredible description of, of what it looks like to fear the Lord. It says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. See, this reverence and this awe is exactly what the fear of God means for Christians. That it's about our heart posture toward God, which is absolutely opposite of than the fear of things which really draws us away with a really tense posture. 
And so when we think of fear, it's not the, th- the same thing as being afraid of something. But the fear of God really draws us into knowing who God is. We see this in Proverbs chapter one, verse seven, that it tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. See, what this means is that until we understand who God is and we really, re- we really develop a reverent fear of him, We cannot have true wisdom. That true wisdom comes only from understanding who God is and that he is holy and that he is just and that he is righteous. So to fear God is to know who he is and to look upon him with reverence and awe. So see, in this verse, we see that there was a group of Israelites in Malachi's day who feared God and we're still convinced of God's faithfulness towards his people. And so see, in the midst of the the struggles in their day, they came together and they spoke well of God. They spoke well of the Lord and they encouraged one another in their faithfulness. And see, church, what we learn from this is that when things go bad, God's people still come together. When things go bad, God's people still come together and they are still faithful to gather together and they are still faithful to praise God. Now, I don't mean for this to be a pitching of church attendance, but what I mean is that here you have a relational God with people pursuing relationship with one another and pursuing relationship with him. And so what is he honoring in this text? What is he looking upon? It's the gathering of godly people who are encouraging one another and making much of his name. And so see, together as they have a healthy fear of God and knowing who he is, they pursue relationship with one another and relationship with him. That they would be faithful to him. That they would fear him and esteem his name. And so see, what we see next in verse 16 is that the Lord paid attention and heard them. See, in the midst of disobedience and doubtful people, God hears and he sees those that are faithful and he does not forget them. In fact, what we see at the end of verse 16 is that God responds to these people that are gathered and it says that a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. And so by placing this record of faithfulness in a book of remembrance, God is really singling out these individuals in the text in a special way. That he's promising them that he's never going to forget this faithfulness that they have to him. And so see, church, what is wonderful for us to take note today is that we can also be confident that God will remember our faithfulness to him that although there are times and there are seasons where we think that there is no fruit to what we are doing, as we do it unto the Lord, God sees, God knows, and God remembers. But see, let me urge you to understand something else in the midst of that that is important. This is not God promising salvation for serving. This is not God promising salvation for serving. You cannot earn your your way into heaven by good deeds. See, God isn't looking for an outward set of tasks or an effective lip service. 
He's looking for followers who will genuinely serve him and genuinely seek him. So let me tell you and let me remind you how ineffective these works and deeds are that you do on your own. Because the truth is, God looks at serving through the lens of our Savior. God looks at serving through the lens of our Savior. So really what we have before us in our life are two separate lists. And the first list are things that will not get you into heaven. They will never save you. And the second list is things that will. So what will not save you? The first list we see good works and our own efforts. We see baptism and communion, church attendance, charity, pastor and pope, indulgences, family, political affiliation, positive thinking and being a good person. None of these things will save you. In fact, we could go on and on and on on the list of things that will not save you, but the list that will save you, the list that surpasses all other lists and things that are given is one thing and that's Christ alone. That's the one thing that will save you. And so let me tell you, church, there is nothing that you can do. There is nothing that you can do. It is who and what you believe that saves you. So your serving, dear Christian, should always be unto the one who saves you, which is Jesus Christ. Because the work to secure your salvation was accomplished on the cross. The work to secure your salvation was nothing you brought as a faithfulness of serving, but it was completely what was accomplished on the cross. And so let me tell you the dangerous flip side to trying to work that out in a way of earning is that anything you do to try and add and to earn only demonstrates your lack of faith in the cross. That's a deep problem. That often our tendency is to try and earn God's approval through our works and through our faithfulness and through our deeds. None of that will do your serving should always be unto the one who saves. But see, with that said, there will always be certain evidences in the life of a person who has been made into a new creation by the Spirit. Meaning that there will always be fruit that accompanies our faith. That faith comes first and then there is fruit. Martin Luther summed it up well with this idea by saying, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. See, saving faith is always accompanied, accompanied by spiritual fruit, which really demonstrates our love for God and for others. And let me tell you, both of those are not natural to the human, but God-molded characteristics that are developed in his children. So church, to be those that fear him and esteem his, names, his name really means that we are those that live by faith alone and are seeking him and are serving him where we're desiring to be more and more and more like Christ. So let me encourage you, do not lose heart. Do not lose heart. Keep on pressing in in your serving, in your faithfulness to God. Don't look at to what others are doing and what others are gaining. Look to Christ and him alone. And as you do that, remember God's promise 
Remember his promise and his response in verse 17. When he says, they shall be mine. If you're a note taker, underline that in your Bible. They shall be mine. That's the words of a father. Remember, he says right there, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. There is the one with the highest authority ever. They shall be mine and no one else will claim them. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. And in the day when I make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. So see, the idea of God's people as a treasure stretches way back in his relationship with his people. In fact, after redeeming his people from slavery in Egypt, God tells Moses on Mount Sinai to report the following message to the people of Israel. In Exodus 19, verse five and six, we first hear this language. He says, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a king of priests and a holy nation. So think about what this means about the character of God and the heart of God, about his own faithfulness and his love for us. Remember, in all of the responses that God has, harshly in response to the arrogance and the hard hearts, remember where he begins in chapter one. For I have loved you. I have loved you with an electing love. You are mine. I have chosen you. So think deeply about what this means about the character of God. That he is a perfect father and provider. And we see here that he is faithful and a just judge. That God has not only provided us a way in Christ, but he has also declared us his treasured possessions. See, here God is drawing a distinction between those who serve him faithfully and those who do not. And on the day of God's judgment, what we see in this is that he is, to, he is going to make very clear who his treasures are and who are not. And see, unlike those who do not serve God, because they don't see the value in it, those who trust in Jesus Christ and serve him faithfully will be his treasure and will be spared by God in the coming day of judgment. And we see this in the end of verse 17, which promises that God will spare us as a man spares his son who serves him. And so because God promises to remember and treasure those who serve him faithfully, we can be confident our service to him is not in vain. We can be confident in our service to him. Because see, as God sends forth his son to spare those who believe in him and follow him, there is made this clear distinction between those who are faithful followers and those that are not. This is what Malachi is telling us in the end in verse 18 when God says, then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. See, notice in this verse that the righteous are described as those who serve, while the wicked are described as those who do not serve. And again, remember, serving God is not what makes us righteous. 
It's not the one that serves that is then made righteous. It's the righteous one that serves. And so serving God is not what makes us righteous. Faith in Christ is what makes us righteous. And the result of that is a heart to serve. And so then on the other hand, if the the fact that someone does not serve God is not what makes him wicked, it is their wickedness which results in their unwillingness to serve. And so see, the only one who can do anything about our wicked hearts is God himself. God is the only one who can do a work of regeneration. And we know this true, even even in the physical, that, that dead people cannot revive themselves. Dead people cannot perform life-helping procedures to bring life to themselves. Only God can do this, as we see. So see, through the work of Christ on the cross and our belief in him, God has given us a new heart and a righteous right standing before him through Christ. So let me tell you, friends, you do not stand before God based on your righteousness. You don't want to. It is standing before God based on Christ's righteousness, the imputed righteousness of Christ. But see, not all are faithful. Not all are choosing to follow Christ. Not all are choosing faith in Christ. And so see, the problem for the people in Malachi's day is that they, were, they believed they were owed some treatment from God for their half-hearted attempts to be obedient to him. They believed that they were owed something for the way that they believed they were perfectly faithful to God. And so when they were not receiving from God what they believed they deserved, they concluded that God had changed and God was no longer interested in rewarding faithfulness. And so in their minds, serving had become useless. There was no pursuit or profit of it. If God is not going to be faithful, then why should we be faithful? And so from their perspective, the real evildoers of the world were really prospering in spite of the fact that they seemed to be rubbing their disobedience to God in his face. And so remember what God is promising here in this verse, that one day the distinction between the wicked and the righteous will be very, very clear, that no one will question God's justice any longer that even though those feel that God is unjust and that he is absent and that he is not at work, all of those things are still true of his character. He is still at work. He is still just. He is still true. And one day, God is going to take his treasured people and set them apart from this mess. That he is going to show that he is faithful as he has always remained to be. And this distinction will be so clear that all will understand exactly how God feels about those who have rejected him and those who have not. And so church, let me remind you and tell you that it is not vain to serve God. Even when we don't see it, even when we don't feel it, even when we don't know the fruit of of it, no one serves unto God in vain. So remember, do not lose heart Press in. Don't look at what others are doing. Don't look at what others are gaining. Look to Christ and to him alone.
Because church, we are called to be those who serve God faithfully where we fear him and esteem his name. And that doesn't come from just doing things for God. That comes from knowing God. That comes from knowing him and pressing in. And so here's what I know is true for some of you. I understand that there are times in your lives where things feel and really in some cases remain very unclear. And you're saying, I'm pressing in, I'm doing that work that you're saying, but I still do not feel it. I still do not believe that God, or I'm struggling to believe that God is faithful in that. And for some of you, maybe the question is, God, how do you even want me to be faithful to you in this season? And so in the midst of that question, in the midst of our searching through all of that lack of clarity, church, sometimes what we need to do, if not always what we need to do, is wait upon the Lord, is to wait upon the Lord. And here's how countercultural this is. No one likes to wait. No one likes to wait. But still, we wait, and we hate it. We wait in traffic, we wait in carpool lanes, We wait in grocery store lines. We wait for the doctor, for the spouse, for a child, for retirement. We wait for sermons to get over. We wait for Jesus to come back. There's all of these things of which we are waiting and our lives culturally sometimes are focused on how do I remove the waiting? How do I get this to go quicker? And let me tell you that for some of you who are trying to get past the pain, you're trying to get past the circumstance, maybe what you need most is to wait upon the Lord. See, here's what we need to understand. Waiting upon the Lord is the process of seeking out God's direction and his will for your life. See, this is what's so important, how we so often overlook the importance of waiting, but truth be told, what God does in us while we wait is as important as what we are waiting for. And so church, waiting, biblical, true waiting is not a passive waiting around for something to happen. Waiting is the confident and disciplined and expectant and active and sometimes even painful clinging to God where you are pursuing who he is, where you're seeking to know him and continue to be faithful to him. And so let me tell you, those who wait are those that work. Those that wait are those that serve because they know that their serving is not in vain. They know as they wait upon the Lord and they press into the Lord and they continue to be faithful to the Lord that that is not in vain. So church, remember, God calls his people to be faithful, to serve him to repent and to return and to wait upon him. So see, as we close this morning, I wanna encourage you to ask yourself, am I faithfully pressing in and serving the Lord? Am I faithfully pressing in and serving the Lord? And see, for some of us, it's a reminder, God, help me to continue to be faithful. And for some of us, for some others of us, it's an absolute need to return to him because everything you've been doing, you are attempting to do on your own. And I can tell you right now without knowing any more than what I'm saying right now, 
that's probably not working for you. So you can make lists of all you need to do for life to get better, for serving to be more fruitful. But are you faithfully pressing in, waiting upon the Lord, where in that you are serving him? Let's pray.